0: Well, that's the case. Then let's let's get going. Um, let's see. So I want to I want to start today. They always say good teaching you want to get everybody kind of starting to think, and you know it's Monday morning and you got to get your brains going and and all that. So here's here's the question. There's no question that as we're looking at. Uh, this, uh, this last week of the Savior's life that he deliberately provokes Jewish authorities to act. Like he's going to do everything possible to come up into the temple mount and poke them in the eye. Get their attention uh, and make sure that they act. He's not messing around here. Um, and so it, it's very clear cut. Uh, in fact, remember, he's going to hang out uh, in Bethany uh, beyond the river, he's going to hang out in Ephraim, he's waiting, he could have done it while he was with Lazarus, raising Lazarus, he just keeps he's preparing, preparing, preparing holding off, holding off, holding off, holding off, okay, and now, now's the moment and I'll make sure, and in fact he's going to tell Judas, go do it now, make, it, make this thing happen right now. So, I guess my question is, why did, he cho- why did he choose to do this at Passover? Now, because if you think about it, if he, re- if he really wanted to make a symbolic statement, you almost think Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, might have been kind of a cool, symbolistic day to act. But he doesn't. There are other days through the year uh, he could have done it but it's Passover, and he makes sure it's Passover, and he drives the fact home that it's Passover, and he will make sure that it happens at Passover. Why, Sister Colt? Oh, just the simple answer that he's the sacrificial lamb and he's making it so that we'll be saved. Okay, now remember they were doing the same sacrifices though at at on Yom Kippur. I'm going back to a very simple time. I- Okay, right, but what would they understand? You're right, they would be tying, whatever he's doing, they're tying it to Passover. But why this? Why now? Why Passover?
1: The Passover, first of all, it was uh, instituted, is that the right word? In Egypt. Right. And, and it was the last of the plagues, and it was when the firstborn died is when the firstborn was taken by the Lord, you know, for, and so, and, and the blood of the lamb was put on the lent, the post and the lentil, right. and, the okay. uh, and, uh, and, and so he was marking all of that. I think it was important that everyone act to declare themselves, so there's no, no doubt in anyone's mind, especially those people who are declaring through their actions, you know, that God's justice and as right.
0: So it's a moment when they declare who they are and God's justice, okay? A- at the act of Passover in Egypt, who dies? The
1: firstborn. The
0: firstborn, who's firstborn?
1: Everyone, including cattle, unless, yeah.
0: they,
1: unless they mark their doors. Egyptians yes. died.
0: Jewish firstborn? Yes. No. They no. They, they would have died. <laughs> they, they would have died. Definitely. Okay, all right, now you're thinking.
2: Well, the blood covered uh, them, just like his blood covers our sins.
0: Okay, yeah, there's that, there's that action again, so you start to see that. Okay.
1: You
2: know, an important part of all this
1: that I personally don't think about enough is this was redemption. And uh, I'm sorry, but it is the restoration yeah. of us to ourselves. These people had been through uh, the military actions and all, had lost the bubble.
3: Yeah. They no
1: longer, I'm so sorry. Yeah. They no longer understood that all of this was about us. But knowing that we are loved by God and that we have the desire and the will to live and to not to be sowed uh, that military might is the desirable thing. Right. And it's not. The desirable thing is that we, uh, I don't know, I can't think of the right words, but we are blessed, we're filled with, like Joseph Campbell said, we find our bliss in our life, you know. And, you know, Adam and Eve, when they were thrown out of the garden because of their transgressions. They wanted to get back.
0: And, and get, 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 get back, right, get back where? In
1: the
0: presence of God. Okay, now hold on here. You're, you're there. Was Passover a restoration? Yes. Where the, the Passover opened up the way for them to be restored to where
1: yeah the original state
0: the original state the original land yes, yes, yes. they were being restored what was the what was the great blessings that were promised to Abraham land posterity priesthood so was Passover a restoration of Israel to where to the Promised Land, right? So, in this sense, the Passover, and you got it, and you, if you'll, if you can conceptualize this, you begin to get a better view about what Jesus was doing during this week. And, and this is where I guess I'm trying to have you do maybe a like the 30 mile view, looking down on this. What was Jesus up to? Okay. The Passover was a restoration of Israel the children of Israel, to their promised land. In a sense, it was a restoration of the covenant and the promise made to who? Abraham. Abraham. Okay? That's what that was. Okay? And and he's going to bring them through miraculously. It's going to be a Passover of the possible death. It's going to be a Passover of the military might. He's going to bring them through the water so that they're going to be kind of cleansed. I mean, there's this. And then the result of this, here is the land. Now, you know, they didn't quite get it, so they have to wait 40 years to get their land, but that's basically what it was. Yeah? I just read that some
2: scholars think that he was restoring the original temple. So right. is, is that what he's going to do?
0: Uh, She says, uh, "Some scholars believe he was restoring the original temple in a way that's true." Say it again. He is the temple, temple. right? That it would the temple, and he and he tells him that the temple will be torn down and rebuilt in in three days, and I will be the temple. You're so. But, but look at what's being restored here. What the part, he's opening the door and preparing the way for Israel to be restored to the Abrahamic promise. Now, this becomes really important because especially next semester when we get into Paul, Paul is going to look at, at Ephesians and Greeks and Corinthians and he's going to say to them, you are no more foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God and inheritors of all the blessings of Abraham. It isn't like Judaism and the law of Moses suddenly had no purpose and we're going to forget about Jews, they screwed it up, and now we start with Christians. He's going to say to the Gentiles, their blessings given to Abraham, and here, and here they are, and you're going to be no more foreigners, but you join Jews in all the blessings of Abraham. You join all of those covenants. That, that's where he's going with this. And what makes that possible? This week, this day, the Passover moment, But in a sense there is, as N.T. Wright is fond of saying, a revolution begins at three o'clock on Friday afternoon. Something dramatic has just happened, and they're not even gonna begin to understand it for three days. But uh, the world just changed. Caesar's still sitting in Rome, the Roman legions are still there, but the world just changed, a revolution just occurred. And it has to be restored. And it's going to be restored at Passover, a time when Israel was brought out of Babylon, Egypt, out of Babylon, and promised their land. And there's a new law that goes with that. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. And Jesus is going to deliberately do it at Passover. I'm going to make sure. Because he could have done it any other day. Okay? so yeah
2: that must have been a little difficult for the people because the land wasn't really theirs at the time
0: say say, say that again a little louder
2: Um, the Romans had taken over so Israel was not their land at the moment right so for him to say that you're being restored to your land doesn't quite
0: No, doesn't resonate does it Uh if you're a follower of Jesus How are you feeling at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon? It didn't, it didn't. What if you're one of the people at part of the triumphal entry that were throwing down palm fronds? How are you feeling at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon? It blew up on us. It didn't happen. It didn't occur. Okay? that's why this revolution and part of what he was trying to 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 teach was, you know, when uh, when Pilate is saying, "Are you a king?" and he says, "If I was really a king er, in the earthly sense, my followers would rise up." They're not doing it, are they? So don't worry, you will almost still get to be in charge in the earthly sense, but a revolution is about to occur two days from now. Okay, so. Keep that in mind. Keep that as the backdrop. That's our context about the massive change that is about to occur here. And it's going to come uh, in the sense of a condemned, crucified, criminal accused of uh, surrection against Rome and, and being tortured and put to death in the worst way possible. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the next week or so. Yeah. Until she says, "Did Israel ever have land?" No, oh, I mean before that. Did they ever have the land
2: before they got
0: that? before 1948, they have the, They have their. They get their land. Remember, there's a couple of shining moments for Israel uh, under the under the kings, Saul, David, Solomon. There's a hundred years we're in control of our destiny. The Hasmoneans in 169 BC rise up and throw off the Greeks. They get a little, they get a decade or two of we're in charge, but for the most part, no. They've they've always been battling. Yeah. yeah. So so now, 1948, they finally get their land. They have they have to fight repeatedly to keep it, but it's still a it's still a battle. It's an everyday battle over there.
1: Isn't the land more a metaphor
0: than it is? I think it's both. Is it, is it more because it certainly is a metaphor to us it's a metaphor yeah. All right. but for them it's, it's reality yeah. and they'll get it okay boundaries. yeah Correct.
1: I'm just thinking how the law of sacrifice weaves so much into this with with a well Abraham was almost sacrificed to. Him. yes Elkanah. he almost sacrificed Isaac right Jesus is going to be sacrificed, and, and I, I was wondering—you know—here's a reprobate, Edward G. Robinson. They smeared the blood on his door. It shows you the efficacy of Christ's blood to, you know, the sacrifice for anybody. Have to save even him.
0: Yes, isn't that great? Isn't that crazy? And I don't
1: know if Cecil B. DeMille meant to do that, but he, I mean, unwittingly.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, uh, it, 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 it was pretty dramatic in the movie, wasn't it? Okay, so keep this in mind because this is this is what's about to happen here um now as we we roll along here there's there's one other uh we talked about the triumphal entry and i want i want to uh point out one little poignant moment that just really kind of jumped out at me that we didn't get to uh last time um in luke 19 as he drew near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the entire crowd of disciples began rejoicing, and they praised with a loud voice all the miracles they had seen. Specifically, what miracle? Lazarus, Lazarus the raising of Lazarus. That's why there's a pretty good chance that Lazarus was walking there uh, alongside. I think he would have wanted him there, okay? Saying, "Hosanna! blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, shalom, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying the, those kind of things. Now, the Savior makes is his response is interesting and, and fraught with meaning. His response is, I say to you that if they were silent, the stones would cry out. What stones? The temple stones. The temple stones. Now, as I, as I was walking through that and thinking about this, um, what he could have said had he chosen to. He could have said this. I declared my divinity to you in the temple months ago. Remember the Feast of Dedication. Uh, they're, They're asking, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Christ? And then he says, I and my Father are one. And what did they do? Tried to? Stone
2: him.
0: Oh, stone him. Stone him. You then tried to stone me. You were trying to say that the very stones of the temple would silence me from saying who I really am. They would be, he would be made silent, shut up, killed by the stones of the temple. You see the irony here? It's beautiful if you can see exactly how the Savior turns this. Because he would have then probably said, in reality it's just the opposite. This temple and the stones of its construction, from the smallest pebble to the massive 1,000-ton uh, foundation stones, shout out my identity and testify of my earthly ministry.
1: The word stone in Hebrew is aben. And from the Hebrew alphabet, every letter has a meaning.
0: It sure does, Yeah.
1: Ben is father son.
0: Oh, really? I didn't I didn't know that. The, the, say that again the little letter. Uh,
1: the Hebrew word for stone is Ben And the uh, the every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has is a symbol of a religious or a mystical spiritual concept. And the two letters of Ben are a abba, father, ben, the sun. Like Yeah. The
0: modern yeah. Ben, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, So isn't it interesting that in a sense, that's what, that's what a stoning is. We're going to use these stones to silence your words or to condemn your actions. And everything about the temple is built on a foundation stone we you know the Holy of Holies sat on a foundation stone. Most likely the stone that, fits, that sits underneath the dome of the rock. 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 What rock? The foundation stone. Okay. So in a sense they're trying to say don't, uh, the, um, don't let the people say that you're like the son of God and he's going if I told them not to the stones themselves would cry out. In that sense, who's the stones? Who's the stones of the new temple? Us. If he's the temple, who are the stones of the new temple? The disciples. Us. Yeah, we become the building blocks. We become the foundation of the new temple, him. Okay? But those stones would cry out, and those stains, those stones testify who he is.
2: The earth itself cried out when the Savior was.
0: Yeah, it, sh- it, it shook in agony, didn't it?
2: Because even the dust of the earth follows the Savior. So they actually, so it's symbolic of us and its actual entities or intelligences that are crying out for him.
0: Yeah, to him. there you go. You see the, see how wrought with symbolism this whole, the events of this last week, and every step is they're all signposts leading towards him, and the death of its creator. But in the death of the creator comes the restoration, restoration and the revolution of a new age for Israel and for us. It's, it's all kind of here. So Anyway, I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Alright, now we get this, we get the moment. We didn't, we started to talk a little bit about the cleansing, uh, and we've tended to call it a cleansing. Uh, then they came to Jerusalem, they entered the temple, began to cast out the sellers. He cast them out, overturns the table, money changers. Uh, did not now look at that verse 16 we'll come back to this one he did not permit anyone to carry anything through the temple and he taught them is it not written my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations you have made it a den of bandits and then the chief priests and scribes hear this they thought they could destroy him they feared then it was evening and he went out so we have this day which is probably Wednesday we think Okay. Now, there's a couple things that that ought to jump out at us a little bit. Um, Yeah. Luke. (laughs) Luke. I think it's 19. Thank you. Okay. So, so let me, so so let me kind of look at this in reverse order. You have made it a den of bandits. Now, what is a den of bandits? What's a bandit? A robber, a thief. Okay. (laughs) Now, think about how this works here. Uh, Where do bandits and thieves do their work? In the dark. In the the dark. In. Well, they they can do it in the cave. Unless, I mean, what do bandits do? They're
1: still valuable.
0: They're still valuable from other people. So so they're out. So where do bandits do their work? Among the crowds, highways, merchants. uh, They're out there doing it out there. After they have gotten done doing their bandit thing, where do they go? Back to their den. So is the den where they steal? No. Where is the den? What are they doing in the den? Hiding. Hiding. They hide in their den. They come out of the den. They go to do their bandit thievery thing. And then they go back to their den to hide. Okay? So what is he saying about the temple has become a... Den of bandits. Is it a place where they are stealing? No. 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 It's where they're hiding. hiding. The stealing is taking place somewhere else. Okay, can you get that? Yeah, yeah. So this is where we come back to maybe counter money or, or whatever. But we're not stealing in the temple. Was there anything that these guys were doing in the temple that was illegal? No. The money changes. Ah. They they were robbing people we have we have done that, haven't we? And they may have been charging a little bit too much interest because if you had if you had Greek drachma or or you had uh, whatever you had, you're gonna change it into temple shekels that could be used to then purchase the animals. You don't want to necessarily bring your animals with you because they might get damaged along the way and then they wouldn't be perfect. You couldn't use them. So you're going to purchase the ones that are already here. Okay, so yes, there's a chance that there was some um, overcharging in the temple. Weren't they also selling inferior animals? They might have, though I don't think that the if, even if they were selling inferior in inferior animals, priests wouldn't have let them in, plus we don't have any record that they were doing that. Everything else is a guess, okay? But by calling it a den of thieves, he's not hes not saying you're doing anything illegal here. And not, and not only that, if we're talking about the cleansing of the temple, we're talking about something that is like 20 acres of space. And it says that he turned over some, I don't think he turned over 20 acres of Tables. He's not. So, then you're saying, then, what is he doing? What is the purpose of this? 20 acres? Yes. Yes. It's a massive, it's a it's a massive footprint. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it would include the, the, yeah, the whole, the whole temple footprint. The, the actual temple itself wouldn't be 20 acres. But they're not doing the selling in that, in that sacred space, they're doing it out there underneath the Solomon columns and all those kind of things, right? Okay, so there's a lot going on here, and a lot of animals, and a lot of stuff, and a lot of noise, and a lot of cacophony. And he comes in, but he does something very specific in this turning over, and he did not permit anyone to carry anything through the temple. What would be the effect of not allowing, now he's going to probably show up with his followers, it's like a uh, Occupy Wall Street kind of thing, they're going, to, they're going to show up, they're going to turn over enough things that they can then block access to the temple uh, so that they couldn't carry anything through the temple. What effect would that have on the business of the temple? Shut it down. He shut down the temple. He wouldn't have to turn now over all the tables. But there's a statement going on here. He's shutting down the, the afternoon sacrifice. They can't, they can't bring their animals through. They can't get them sacrificed. They can't do the... He shut it down for the day. Now, how long that lasted, we don't know. It then says then he goes home. It isn't like he shut it down all week. But he's made a statement here in, in the shutting down of the temple. Now, he's declared a couple of things. One, there are bandits hiding here. They're not doing illegal things here, but they are hiding here. Which bandits might he be referring to, do you think, by the way? The The priests. What are they doing, not in the temple, but what are they doing out there? What thievery would be going on outside?
2: Well,
0: they were in cahoots with the Romans. Sure, The, the Sadducees, those guys, yeah. All of them and I'm
2: sure that business was transacted outside of the temple.
0: Right. And
2: then when we got to the temple, they were perfect. They were just
0: wonderful. Everything was wonderful, yeah. A sacrament meeting, we're looking really good, okay? Exactly. And we're here. Okay. But out there, what are we doing? Probably what what's the what's the big crime that an Israelite people can perform? What's the what's the one crime that will result in a Israelite city being destroyed according to the Lord. Oh. Ado- well, not, not adultery. Idolatry. Idol- Idol- yes. Idolatry and specifically, though, starving the poor, starving the poor and stoning the prophets. Those are the two big ones. Sodom and Gomorrah, all over the place. You know, if you're going to starve the poor, which are you going to be starving the poor in the temple? Now you can charge a little bit much there, but the real starvation is happening in their business affairs out there. Okay.
2: Does that also apply to spiritual starvation?
0: And there's, yeah, they're creating spiritual thievery out here in the things that they're teaching and all that. Good, good catch.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. They're stealing their path to redemption, to restoration of their souls to the presence of God. That's what they're really stealing and thieving.
0: Yeah. Okay, all right. You're thinking, see, we have had this tendency to describe this moment as one of a two things. This is where he gets angry and he overthrows the money changers and he's condemning commercialization. Or we'll say this is the cleansing of the temple because these things had to be removed. No, you, they had to make these changes. That you, they needed to get their lambs and doves and things for the sacrifices. But we've tended to see it in that mode no, that he was condemning the money changers condemning the business activity going on in there, he's not doing that. He go, well, then why this? Why this big statement of shutting down the temple for some period of time where they couldn't sacrifice? Yeah, why did he turn over the table? Why did he do that? Yeah, why, why is he doing all of this? Okay. He, he does. He showing. He he does have some power here. Absolutely. Absolutely, he has all of all the power. All right. So let this question hang in the air for just a second. I want to. I want to solve it right away because I want you to answer. You, what then? If he wasn't cleansing, and he wasn't condemning the people for the. What was he? What was the purpose of this event prior to his death? Okay. All right. So. Hang on here. So, yeah.
3: Was this event uh, when Jesus got most angry? What can I, can I identify this as the most angry moment? His very action.
0: I mean, we say we say that he's angry. I don't know if we'd have been watching him if we'd have seen him yelling and and, and angrily throwing it, or if he was calmly. I don't know. Yeah, try to think about his emotions. But we have, think traditionally, culturally, we have tended to look like, this is the moment you are trashing my temple and you have destroyed my father's house. And he's just kind of going crazy. Okay? But
2: he, maybe he's... Provoke them that they will do something
0: to well, there's no question that this provoked them. <laughs> if, if you're wanting to provoke the Jews to action, the taking over the temple, shutting down the sacrifice for that day, no question, that would be the final poke in the eye where they go, okay, whatever we got to do, we got to wait till we can catch him when there, he doesn't have a crowd around him, and we got to get this guy fast. But there would have been other things he could have done to provoke that. I mean, he could have set fire to Caiaphas' house, for instance.
2: <laughs> Probably would
0: have also done that. Yeah.
1: I, this anger thing and this... Yeah. Like we perceive other people being angry and out of control. I don't yes.
0: think he was that at all. No.
1: I think when he sat down and, and
2: cladded not. whatever he did to go in there, he's not the
0: the impulsive, angry. No. Aggressive. If he's going to feel some emotion impulsively, he weeps. He, he becomes tearful. He becomes sad when he watches people that he loves in pain. Okay. And when we talk in about two weeks, when we're talking about the power of what actually happens on the cross, boy, you're going to really see that that's, it, it is about his tears and all that, his pain. Okay. All right. So. What exactly was he doing what was what was the purpose here okay now to do this maybe the best way to do this and it and 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 when this jumped out at me I kind of went oh oh and then it's always nice when I get a "Uh uh-huh and then I go take a look at the scholars and they go oh yeah we already knew that for centuries okay yeah but I'm glad I got it before I read you because then that's kind of cool okay so this was one of those where I saw it and then when I went to look then I found that uh, other scholars who I have a lot of uh, respect for uh, also agreed with this. Um, and, and So go, if you look at Mark 11, but look at the chronological order of what is about to happen here, and I think you'll begin to see exactly what he was doing. Mark 11, uh, this little story of the fig tree kept showing up while we're trying to walk through the, the, the events of this last week and i kept hopping out my eyes kept hopping over the fig tree like like there was this side thing that was happening over here that didn't necessarily fit with everything else but it kept being there and this and the synoptics kept throwing the fig tree thing in there and i thought well that's dumb this is spring there's no figs yet and thought well that's a, it's like an incidental thing well look at the look at the pattern on here and it has, it has a kind of a poetic style to it. He's going to curse the fig tree. Then what he's going to do is he overthrows the, ta- the tables and the money changers. Then he goes home. Then on the next day, they're coming back up to the temple, and what happens? The fig oh, wait a minute. The next day he sees that the fig tree has withered. Luke has it happening immediately. The rest of the synoptics, including Mark, don't. They have, there's a day. So, so think about this. He's going to curse the fig tree. He then overthrows the, the, the money changers, and the next day the fig tree has withered. And then he says this. Truly I say to you that whoever says to this mountain what mountain the temple temple. whoever says to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he speaks will come to pass it will happen (laughs) no in other words he's comparing the fig tree to the temple what happened to the fig tree? It withered and died. What happened to the temple?
1: It was destroyed.
0: Right. It was destroyed. 30 years later, but it was destroyed. Now, so, here, here's the kind of the aha moment, I think, in all of this. He condemned the fig tree and it dies. What happens when he overthrows the tree? the tables of the money changers and he shuts down the temple at some level what did he just do Killed himself. Not, not himself the temple the temple he condemned the fig tree it withers he just condemned the temple and it too will wither and it too will be destroyed
2: it started the process of destroying the temple.
0: The th- overthrowing of the money changers was not condemning the people or the activities. The overthrowing of the money changers and the shutting down of the temple was condemning the temple. Because in this setting, because with the, with the completion of the of the uh, law of Moses and the moving of the cell from this, the salvation For for, for instance, let me just, uh, along with that, let me just quote this way. Let's say, for instance, that uh, um, you're getting ready to travel internationally, and you're walking down the street, and a stranger comes up to you, and he says, hey, you need a passport? (laughs) I got passports. I can give you a passport right here. And he gets, a, and you get a passport on the spot. What happens when you then take that passport and you try and pass through customs internationally? Is that going to work? No. no. What happens if, if, if your 16-year-old who really wants a driver's license doesn't want to wait in the DMV, and they happen to run into some guy outside who goes, Psst, "Need a driver's license? I got him." I'll, I'll, I'll give you a driver's license. Wow. We don't have to wait in the DMV? No. Here's the driver's license. Nice. What happens when, you get, when your 16-year-old gets pulled over by a policeman and they pull out the driver's license? They check it. There you go. It doesn't quite work that way. Okay. In Israel, how were your sins remitted? What did it take to get your sins remitted in ancient Israel?
3: Sacrifice.
0: Sacrifice. 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 Where? At the temple. And so you can't find what did he say to lepers? To the, the blind? To Zacchaeus? To the woman with the, the adulterous woman in the temple? What was he saying to all of these people? <laughs> this day salvation has come to your house. You are saved. And they were saved by not doing what? They weren't having to go to the temple. They were getting it from the Savior. He By his very actions, he, he was becoming the temple. Salvation doesn't come by sacrificing animals in the temple. Salvation comes through me. There was a shift going on. To him, and in the and as he was, as he's rising up at that moment, while he's taking over the temple, so the salvation of Israel no longer is resting on the altars of the temple. Salvation of Israel is resting where? In their Savior, in their Christ, who is sitting there on the Temple Mount. This—that's what I say. You got to see. There's a revolution happening here. It's a shift going from the temple to him. You got competing places for salvation and Jesus says, and I'm shutting down that one because it's about me. Yeah. So then that would make sense as to why now we have temples because you restore it. Rest- Everything's restored. Of all, of all things. Restoration of In a sense what was happening after that point they didn't need a temple. When when we think about what Joseph Smith did and with the kirtland temple and the reinstituting of temples this restoration was kind of repurposing the same structure same kind of altars but for a vastly different in a vastly different way it wasn't just salvation only happens in the temple salvation and only the high priest goes into the holy of holies it was joseph smith restored the full power of a temple that is uh, salvation is happening but this is now exaltation this is walking back into the presence of God and it's available to men and women and anybody and it's true covenant making. in the true covenant making yeah the, the, the Kirtland temple and modern temples are, are a vast jump forward of what was going on but in that sense in an Old Testament temple of Solomon temple of Herod Form, that just became obsolete because this walking temple could grant salvation to anybody that he would do it and he will win that victory completely to do it Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock as he dies that's that's kind of where we're going that's a hand I know I, 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 I'm not watching people go oh, that's weird okay
2: wasn't the sacrifice always to point to the Savior? I'm sure Moses taught
0: or, it that way. Oh, sure. But
2: over the thousand
0: years or whatever. It had gotten lost, hadn't it? Yeah. The, the set Right. the It the, was supposed to be that, but like we talked about uh, last week, they were so busy looking at the signpost, they weren't looking at what the signpost was pointing towards. Right. Again, it's like going to Yellowstone and loving their signs. But never seeing the seeing the geysers, the sign was really great. Yeah. So back to where
2: you were talking about how um, Christ was the—he's the stone of the temple. He's well, he's the—he's the cornerstone.
0: Yeah, hold on to that. We're about to get there.
2: And, and you were talking, about the stone, you were talking about how the stone how the stones would testify at him we think
0: about the apostles, they're the foundational stones. Yeah. They are. And those stones, if you've got a, you a cornerstone, and those stones do cry out. Those stones do testify to the chief cornerstone. That, that, that's their job, is to testify that it, it exists here. Okay? And, and again, and so, one last thing, we've mentioned this before, especially next year when you get into the, uh, we get into the Book of Mormon, and we're talking about Third Nephi 17, and Jesus is outside the temple of Bountiful, but he creates a temple on the spot with himself in the middle as the Holy of Holies and the children as the Holy Place and their angels watching over. I mean, can, Jesus can have a temple wherever he wants because it's him. <laughs> it's, very, it's, it's very cool. So in a sense, that's what's happening. This isn't a simple pushing back against these bandits and we don't like these guys. This is a turning over enough things to shut down stuff coming through the temple enough to do, do it is provoking. He is provoking. This will. Yeah. This is the final poke in the eye. Yeah. Okay. Now, money how they Yeah. This will definitely get their attention. Okay. So the next step, the next step in this process, ought to make plenty of sense to you. If you are, if you are the priests, if you're the scribes, if you're the elders, and you're sitting in your houses, and the temple just got shut down, and you hear him out there granting salvation to people who weren't sacrificing. What do you do next? You Really fast. Now, he's he's surrounded by crowds and he's become, there's this popular uprising, this popular leader. We can't really get him, but what can we do? Well, what we'll do is, let's go challenge him. So here we go. By what authority are you doing this? Luke twenty. And it came to pass that on one of the days that he taught the people in the temple and proclaimed the good news, and the chief and here, here they are the three: chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is this is a make no mistake. This is a delegation from the Sanhedrin to challenge him. How come he thought he could do this? Chief priests, scribes, elders, come to him. Say they say. Tell us by what authority you do these things. Who gave you this authority? What made you think that you could grant forgiveness of sins? What makes you think you can shut down the temple? What gives you the right to be an alternative to what we're doing in, the, in this temple? Where'd your authority come from? And, and the, the chief priests would say, we're the chief priests. And the elders would say, we're the descendants of the Hasmoneans, we're, we're the royal family here. And the scribes would say, we got all of the records. We know who's, who's got the authority and who doesn't have the authority. This is an official delegation, okay? Now, who gave you this, this authority? So, uh, you got to love Jesus' response to this one. He answered and said, oh, I'll ask me a question then. Tell me, the baptisms of John, the ba- John and his baptisms, okay? Um, was it of heaven or from people? Who gave John the authority to baptize? Well, that's a tough one. (laughs) Because, remember, the the main body of Jesus' followers were, first of all, followers of John. And they saw Jesus as the next step to this revolution that was happening here. That they hoped would overthrow the Romans, but at the very least, it's starting with John Uh, it it is fulfilled in Jesus. We have a triumphal entry. Romans are probably gone by Monday. (laughs) Okay, it's just, this is all happening. Okay, and he says, oh, baptism of John, was it from heaven or from other people? They discussed it with one another and they said, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? Okay. (laughs) You, you, You love this, Okay. If we say from people, all the people will stone us. Because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. And then they answered that they did not know where it came from. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not telling. (laughs) Kind of a five year old response. Uh Who ate the cookies? I'm not telling. I don't know. I don't know. Jesus said to them, nor do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay? Now, he could have left it at that, right? But to use his words, I tell you truly, it was time for one more poke. And this was the poke that did it. Of all the things that he had said over three years, this would be the poke that would finally do the big provoking that would result uh, in them coming in the middle of the night, offering money to to Judas. This is the final poke. And as, as the Savior always did it, he did it in parable form. So Jesus' response is Luke 20. First line, and he began to speak this parable to who? the multitude so here's the official delegation by what authority do you do this uh, John well we're not telling okay well neither am I telling me it, then it turns to the multitude with with these guys sitting there listening let me tell you a parable a man planted a vineyard and he rented it to farmers and went away for a long time now by the way And both of these are really, really relevant. You need to be aware of this. Uh, If if we talk about parables of vineyard to LDS readers, what does that bring to mind? What parable of the vineyard do we really like? Jacob Jacob. Jacob 5, right? (laughs) We talk about it as the olive trees, but the olive trees in Jacob 5 are planted where? In In the vineyard. Oftentimes they would plant olive trees in a vineyard because you could, you could have a mix of the same soil, but sometimes the vineyard could actually use the trunk of the olive tree to, to grow on. But Jacob is saying he planted olive trees in a vineyard. So, we, so when we hear the word vineyard, a man planted in a vineyard, we go, oh, this is Jacob's pie. And yes, it is. It really, really is. Use that as our backdrop now if you are a Jew though a parable of a vineyard and he's talking about I'm gonna, he's going to plant a vineyard and then he's going to go what, where to first century Jews would they be thinking what is their reference for a vineyard planted and I'd be surprised if anybody knows this I certainly didn't until I had to kind of track it down okay Here's the vineyard that would have been very familiar to first century Jews and especially to the guys from the Sanhedrin. It's in Isaiah 5. He's about to, he's going to repurpose Isaiah 5. There's a great little parable there. Okay? So real quickly, here's here's Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard great stuff my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill okay this is the uh, I think it's NRSV version he dug it and cleared it of stones oh those stones showed up again he cleared it of stones and planted with jo- choice vines he built a watchtower in the midst of it okay ding what temple he built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, cleared it out, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there that I could to do for my vineyard? Think about Jacob 5. What more could I do that I have not done. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And I, now I will tell you. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, the wall. It shall be devoured, the temple. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down, so that not one stone is left upon another. It's basically what he's saying. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up and I shall command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it and it will, there would will be a drought where the vineyard was. Okay. What is he saying here? Yeah. Isn't
2: he also uh, condemning them for their apostasy?
0: Yeah. And because of their apostasy the most visible image of their apostasy is what? The destruction of the temple. That's why I say the temple's being condemned here. It it is. And it's going to be destroyed. And thirty years later it was. And he's declaring that it's going to be, because you have made it a den of thieves. It's been it's been a hideout for those that are starving my poor and not holding up the right principles. That, this is quite an action he's taking here, okay?
1: The drought there, though, too, is the holding back of the word. You know, so that, that doesn't satisfy their thirst.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. So uh, that's what he's saying. So not only is the temple going to be destroyed, but but you will no long, you'll, there'll be a drought of the word. And Isaiah uses that imagery over and over and over, okay? As does Jeremiah and a few others, okay? So that so so when he starts talking about planting planting a vineyard that a man planted a vineyard and then he went away this is this is where their brain goes this is what this is they understand this okay this is this is their context okay so back to Luke 20 so he began to speak this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to farmers. Yeah, I, I, he's not even doing it himself. At least in Isaiah, he's planting he's it himself. At least in Jacob 5, he's planting himself. In this case, there was a vineyard and these farmers, other people came in. Anybody that's ever owned a business, what is the difference between the owners and the employees?
2: What's
0: the sign that we, if we learned about the real shepherd and the shepherd's? Yeah. That owns the shepherd versus those hirelings that come in. What happens with the hirelings? They run away, they run away when danger comes. What happens to a, a vineyard when, when it's just people that are renting the vineyard? They don't own the land, they don't love the land, they're just getting whatever money they can while they're working it.
2: Gonna
0: fight no, that. no. They're just going to let. It, they don't take as good care of it. They're not as careful. And if you own a business, how important is that to you? Ooh, yeah. That's. I, um, I think it, it's
2: kind of like that parable of the goose. Those who don't own the goose would get the last egg now, but if you own the goose, it's worth those eggs.
0: You, you take care of the goose
2: and you take your
0: wealth over time instead <laughs> of... It's an asset to you as opposed to what you can get out of it right now. And that's kind of what he's saying. He rented it to farmers and then went away for a long time. So they're not do- taking very good care of this thing, okay? Now, he's kind of hoping for something, though. So in the parable, and at harvest time he sent a servant to the farmers so that they would give him some of the fruit from the vineyard. I'd like some return off of my land. Yeah, and Can you give me some fruit? Of the vineyard. But the farmers do what? Beat him and send him away empty-handed. Oh, that's not good. Okay. So then what does he do? He sent another servant. But they also but they also beat him and insulted him and sent him away third-handed. And he sent a third, and in this one they even wounded and cast out. So Again, in, in Jewish storytelling, you got the th- you got the three. Remember, anytime time you see a three, this is this is Jewish storytelling at its best. And there's always and if you're going to get three, there's generally what there's going to be a progression. He keeps sending in servants, and each time, what happens? It gets worse. It gets worser and worser. Step by step, is getting worser. Okay. So, you're, so this follows tra, uh, traditional Jewish telling. But well, what are, who are the servants in this case? The prophets. the prophets. I keep sending you prophets and you keep stoning them and hurting them. Sometimes you ignore them. Ultimately, you get to a point of great wickedness that you're now you're going to to kill them. That's when a city is condemned, when you get to that point. Okay, so here's what's happening. So they're wounded and cast out weren't dead yet but they were darn close okay so now what now now if think from a traditional standpoint here if if uh, and tradition especially in Middle Eastern culture where it's about pride and it's about saving face If you send a servant and they get kicked out and you send a servant and they get abused and kicked out and you send a servant and they're getting wounded and kicked out what is the next logical step? Come. Send in the army. That is the next logical step. But look at where Jesus goes with this. Yes, he does. And the Lord of the vineyard said what can I do? He's going to counsel, ponder what can I do? I will send my beloved son and perhaps they will show him respect he's going to send him in unarmed and simply count on the caring of people to take care of my son will come and do and he won't be as abused as the servants were certainly they're not so bad that they would harm the son that's way out of tradition for this culture.
2: Well, and yet he would be the one that would inherit the land. Really, you're sending your your
0: heir. Hold on to the inheritance idea. Hold on here. It's the next verse.
2: <laughs>
0: when the farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that... The inheritance will be ours. This false idea, we're farmers. We agreed to work the land. We're, we're not allowing the owner to get any of the fruits of this. But if we kill his heir, somehow that inheritance falls to us. It becomes our land. We own this temple. We, oh, this is ours. This is our temple. Now, can you picture, by the way, that little gang from the Sanhedrin standing there listening to all this? (laughs) This is just so masterful, I can't even believe it. It's just awesome. The Savior was so good at this. This is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance will be ours. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, this is the mayhem principle is how to trade blood for money. Okay? You're right. Good point. All right. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the Lord of the vineyard do to them? If you kill the, if you kill the beloved son, what's going to happen to you? Here comes the stick he's about to jab it in their eye he will come and destroy those farmers and rent the vineyard to others others will come over and take over the vineyard yikes now if you're, if you're the crowd if you're the multitude how do you respond to this what would your response be? Wait a minute. The, if the son is killed, you're going to give the vineyard to somebody else? What would that mean? Gentiles. Maybe Gentiles. Somebody else. Have they ever seen other, other, uh, others inherit the vineyard? By their history? The Greeks, the Romans. Uh, the Babylonians, other people of that have come in and controlled this piece of land. Ultimately, because they will do it, they will then happen with the uh, Romans and the Ottomans, and there's just going to be a, a long succession of people that will control this. Okay, because this is what, exactly what happened. Okay, so the response of the people to this? Oh, let it not be so. <laughs> Let, let it not be so, okay, that you're, you're, you're scaring us now. Because not only is the, is the vineyard going to be lent out, but what's going to happen to the beloved son? They're going to kill him. And what, what does he just say to them? Guys, they're going to kill me. My death is about to happen. But wait, let's let's drive the stick in just a little bit more here. But he looked at them, and it could have been the multitude, and it could have been also the Sanhedrin, and said, "What is this that has been written? The stone—we're back to stones again—the stone that the builders rejected, this became the cornerstone. This is uh, this is." Uh, psalm 118 this is their passover psalm that they're saying they were singing as they walked up to the temple in the first place this is okay and that's the phrase the stone that the builders rejected this became the cornerstone okay uh real quickly um the uh if you go into the uh kind of jewish mishnah the, the traditions and everything there are a couple of traditions about this phrase which I th- and I, I thought they were pretty good, since they were very similar. Uh, and may give us at least, if not the truth, at least the way that they looked at it. Okay, And it, it goes something like this. Uh, in the building of Solomon's temple, the Lord gave a requirement in the building that there wasn't supposed to be the sound of hammers heard up on the temple mount. He didn't say why, he just said, don't want that. So that means that over in the quarry, they would quarry out the massive stones that would go into the temple, and all of the carving and everything would take place at the quarry. Then they're going to haul those stones, like I say, sometimes uh, 100 tons is the really big one underneath there, drag that out there and put it into place. So that means that the the stones would come from the quarry and come to the Temple Mount already pre-cut. And then they just have to assemble, okay, like a great big Lego set. But one of them, they, they, they formed a stone that was irregular looking. It wasn't square, it had this arch to it, and it was just odd shaping. And it got up, the Mishnah says that it got up to the Temple Mount, the builders looked at it and went, well that doesn't fit anything. And it says they they cast it aside and it kind of sat out in the weeds uh, while they were building the temple and the weeds kind of grew over it, okay? So they're building the temple, they build the temple, then they're building the the, the top uh, arch over the the entrance into the into the sanctuary, into the holy of, into the holy place. Okay? And they get up there and they go, Oh, a square piece won't fit in that space. If only we had one that would fit that space, and then they went, wait a minute, there was that weird stone that we kind of left off in kind of stone garbage to, with the weeds growing over it. Go look at that one. And they go, oh my gosh, it works. <laughs> so then they go and they get that stone that was odd shape, and they haul it in and they plug it in, and it was exactly the stone, like I said, it was the entrance into the holy place.
2: Keystone.
0: it was the keystone right and so it turns out that in the Mishnah the stone that was rejected by the builders has become the head of the corner it's, everything comes from that okay so, so in a sense he's kind of referencing that okay so the stone that the builders rejected this became the cornerstone And then, one more, I'm going to take this cornerstone idea. We all recognize that I'm talking about me. (laughs) Anyone, Sanhedrin, who falls on this stone will be broken. When, When it falls on anyone, it will crush that person. Remember when Jesus is first brought into, the first time he goes into this temple is as a baby. And he's brought in, and is it uh, Simeon? Simeon, who says, oh, Mary, this, this child will be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. There is a sense that we can cast ourselves against Jesus. And we'll kind of say much about who we are. Oh, Mary. People will really kind of be differentiated by how they handle Jesus. And this child will be the separator that says who they are and who they're not. And that's kind of what he's saying here. The stone, this stone, if you fall against it, you'll be broken. And ultimately, guys... The scribes and the chief uh, crush that. The scribes and the chief priests sought to arrest him in that hour, but they feared the people, for they knew that this parable against them. So that's that's the moment he has declared that pretty clearly. Um, okay. All right. Questions on all this?
3: I really like today's lesson because I, I I see how ignorant people are. War. Um, using your words, Jesus, just you know the the last leg of his race on the earth, he poking people's eyes with all speed, full speed, and I feel these people. I wonder. Uh, how smart they were, can understand any bit of the words he said. I think Jesus was basically talking from a different dimension. And those people are really on the low dimension. Yeah, They're still thinking about he is a rebel and uh, try to uh, uh, t- take in charge. But I think they don't, they didn't understand any bit of... no. I, I can see that, and I, I was thinking about this really apply to us in our life, uh, how much we really understand our prophet apostles, uh, their words. And I also have a... Sorry, I, I just totally see how, how ignorant people can be. Um, and the other, I have a question is, when while you were talking about cleanse, curse, condemn, Those words remind me of the second coming. I I couldn't help to think about: Are there any symbolic meaning relating? Because in the scripture we talk, we learn when Jesus come again, there will be cleans of the earth, right? Destruction, and I. This is the part I kind of have a traffic jam in my mind. I was thinking the meaning of cleanse and the destruction, why it always come before the
0: before the fire? Yes. And then
3: how can we feel true love? And like those people they were seeing Jesus <coughs> did all these things. Probably to them Jesus was crazy. This guy is just seeking for death.
0: Yeah. And uh,
3: I'm wondering Oh, this is kind of all question. Probably only a very small group of people know that he did it all this out of love. But what about the majority of people? What can they see? God's love and intention.
0: You, you, you're thinking, yeah, yeah. I mean, look at all that's look at all that's happening here. And you're right. It's, 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 she, she's saying, she, she, she said. She if, said. If, Everything that he's doing here is done out of a sense of love, and there, such a false, small amount of people would understand that this was being done out of love and that they're still trying to figure out. That's why isn't it interesting that even in the at, like I say, at four o'clock on Friday, they don't understand, even his disciples don't understand. Uh, and certainly, the Romans thought that they understood, they understood. Uh, in fact, and I, I'm going to read a quote uh, probably next week uh, from a Roman historian who talks about this this uh, Yeshua that was killed on the eve of Passover uh, as a rebel and the, and this cult is still among us, you know it was like getting rid of these guys. You know, they're still not understanding uh, what's happening here. Um, and And so yeah it's it's kind of touching. We can see. Uh, and, and on top of that, I would just say too, uh, last thing. we're looking at Luke. Uh, we could be looking at Mark um, and, or John or Matthew. but these are being read by people. we're watching it happen. We're, we're listening to the story happening. They're looking they're reading this decades later. and they were probably asking the same thing. How come they didn't see it? what what, what were they, what were they missing on this? okay? All right, so we're about 10 minutes. Um, let, let me, since I've got a little bit of time, let me, let me just take the remainder of the time here and set up kind of where we're going to go next week. Uh, we're going to talk uh, next week more about uh, the Last Supper uh, as we lead into that, uh, probably last, last Supper and, and probably Gethsemane, we'll, we'll see. Well, no, I take it back. It's going to be the Last Supper and John's. Realize that like half of John's gospel is the last week, and that there were like five chapters on the Last Supper, the intercessory prayer, the washing of feet. They're just so rich. So, so next week is is all about the Last Supper. But I want to set the table. Get that set table. um, With this, Uh, there is a difference in uh, a couple of details from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke who see it one way and John who's telling it another, and depending on how you want to read it you get a different message. And they've tried to reconcile this, it can't be reconciled, so it really depends on how you want to utilize the text to teach the lesson you're trying to teach. Because historically you can't reconcile between John and the synoptic gospels. It just can't be done, no matter how much people try. Okay, so let me give you a couple of ideas about the differences. The Synoptics, Matthew Mark and Luke, uh, the day Luke says the day of unleavened bread came on which the Paschal lamb would be sacrificed and he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us for the Passover that we may eat. So at the time that the that the Paschal lamb is being sacrificed in the temple, the guys are out there either getting the lamb, Sacrificed, but they're making preparations for where they're going to eat the Passover meal because Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that the, the Last Supper was a Passover Seder. It was that, that ceremony. Okay, So they would have had the lamb. They would have had, if it's anywhere close to modern Seders, it would probably have several glasses of wine. Uh, it would have unleavened bread because of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Would have had all the trappings of that. Yeah?
2: is this just the next day?
0: Where, where- it is. We think if this is depends on who you're talking. Again, synoptics would say probably the cleansing is Wednesday and now they're putting the, this last supper on Friday. Uh, John is going to disagree with that. Um, but for them it is, and, and they, they look at this in conjunction of saying he turned the Passover meal into the sacrament. He takes the emblems of that and he makes it the Eucharist, the sacrament, kind of going, going forward. And I, and I would say most of traditional Christianity tends to see the Last Supper as a Passover meal. There are a couple of problems with this because I don't think it was. Uh, there's a couple of problems. One, if this is a Passover meal, he, do, he isn't just going to have the 12. Who's gonna, who attends a Passover Seder? Everybody. There's no mention of a lamb. There's no mention even of the unleavened bread. Uh, It just it it doesn't have the trappings of a traditional Passover meal. Okay, and I think John is looking at. And if John might be uh, the apostle, we don't know. But if it was, then he's the one eyewitness we have in the gang, probably. All right, so. uh, John 13 says before the feast of the Passover, Jesus saw that his hour had, had arrived to depart from the world to, to the Father. For, so for John, Passover is eaten after dark, the lamb is sacrificed at three o'clock. His narrative puts uh, Jesus dying at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon at the exact same time that the Passover lambs are being sacrificed in the temple. Which has It ought to have some resonance. That seems to make more sense. That doesn't mean that as he's instituting the, the bread and the wine that he didn't have to do it in a Passover setting to do it. He simply did it as part of a last meal. Okay? But he definitely has... So he's moving it back to about Thursday, probably. Um, Another difference is style. Uh, Most of them, most of uh, the depictions of this, other than da Vinci's, uh, the more accurate historical ones would have them reclining at a Roman triclinium which is like a couch that you're going to lean kind of here and you're kind of laying alongside the table. And so everybody's just kind of leaning and, and reclining. So, and, and you can see the, how they used to do that. Um, okay. um, pretty good chance that the Last Supper was done common style. That means that they, they would tend to sit around together and all eat out of a common pot. Take the bread, dip it in the stew or something and then eat it. This makes more sense when we talk about uh, Jesus handing the sop to Judas, probably sitting nearby, dipping out of the same common pot. Had to be a stone pot um, and that there would be a big, like I say, a big thing of stew and they're kind of sitting around commonly eating it. Okay? Uh, that seems to be given his style more of a chance that it was more that style. Excuse me, why would they do it in Roman style? Well, that traditionally they have thought that, spe- that especially if you're going to put it up in the... Uh, hold on to that. It makes sense. Because the other place is where? Where, where did this take place? Um, the traditional, if, if, if you go on a tour there the traditional site for the Last Supper uh, is this upper room. Uh, there's a couple of interesting things about this uh, arching overhead is the built by the Crusaders uh, is a t- typical uh, Middle Ages kind of construction, okay? They're also, anybody know what this thing is in the corner here? that look familiar to anybody? It's a Muslim altar. There was a period of time after after the uh, uh, the Suleiman captured that, that they, they took this upper room here and they made it into a mosque. They tend to do that. Hagia Sophia, Dome of the Rock, they tend to, to build on here. So that, that thing still exists. This is a traditional place and it's up In the old city, next to where all they were all Roman houses, this is Sadducee, this is Sadduceeville, this is uh, full Roman style, okay. And there, they would have been eating on a triclinium just because that's what you ate at that part of town. This is an oak cliff, this is Highland Park, okay. So, so there's this sense of this is kind of an upper, and then, and so you're gonna, it's going to be a very formalized uh, kind of setting. Okay. Uh, now, a couple of problems with this. If this is, if this is the old city, here's the temple. Here's the city of David coming down here. This is the construction on the western end here. Uh, at the far end of this is Herod's uh, palace. Okay. Uh, if we're gonna and and the Antonio Fortress is right behind there but if you're gonna f- kind of flip this around once you be able to see that Herod's palace is here and in this map we've got Herod's palace on along this end of the wall and we're going to talk about where we think that's where Jesus was his trial was okay just down the hill so kind of right up here near the the top here is the house of Caiaphas and right like the next street over is where this upper room is. Now, the question is, if you have just poked Caiaphas in the eye in the temple and you're trying to at least get through a last supper and a last meeting with your disciples before they're going to finally come and get you and kill you, do you really want to rent out a house right next to Caiaphas' house? <laughs> does, does that make any sense? No, nah, it doesn't. That's why uh, scholars like Matthew Gray um, at BYU, uh, Eric Huntsman, um, would suggest that one of two possibilities. Uh, One is that it's either somewhere lower down here near the bottom, where there's a little trail path out here, or that somehow that this might have taken place in the city of David over here, Uh, which then would mean that he would then exit probably through what we call the Dung Gate, uh, to get out onto the path because here's the path on the east side that leads through the Kidron Valley that leads over here to the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane. So it would have been easy for them to have a meal and under the cover of darkness, come out, get on the trail, and then go over to Gethsemane without raising the ire of every, in Caiaphas or uh, everybody that was scouring the place looking for him, trying to find him. And, and we're going to talk about, when we talk about Gethsemane, I think there was a very particular spot, uh, and I'm, I'm beholden to Matthew Gray, that has kind of now suggested this, we think a particular spot that would have given Jesus the privacy for, the, for what he did in Gethsemane, and it's not traditionally where you might think, so. Okay, uh, questions on any of that? This is, so this becomes the setting for the Last Supper, yeah?
2: In the previous slide that you showed with the, the architecture, so much of all of that was built over the real location of things. And so yeah. This is centuries after.
0: Yeah, this is like 14th century. thing. It's really, it's really true. And there's all kinds of amazing things in here. But even then, whatever that site would have been, it would have been, uh, pardon the pun, it would have been within a stone's throw of Caiaphas. <laughs> and, they, and, and they would not have wanted to be in that quarter of the city that night, after what he just did in the temple that day. Okay? Alright. Good stuff? Okay. So, next week, I we want to talk about uh, uh, the Last Supper and the things that uh, the Savior is doing. this one last training for, the, for the, the brethren to get them ready for what he's about to do. Um, let me just finish with this then. I'm bearing my testimony that what Jesus is doing this last week. Is, is a revolution. It is overturning the world. It is replacing the temple of Herod with himself, that he becomes the author of salvation, that he becomes the one in which the, the, the power of God rests, the, the shekinah, the glory, is in him, um, and that he off, he's the, becomes the author of salvation. And that's part of where the pushback became in such a big way um, from the Jews. So... Uh, bury my testimony that it's true, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Father in